Would you please look with me at our text of Scripture? This week we'll read the same text that we read last week, which is Genesis chapter 39. We're studying through the life of Joseph. And we're at the account of how Joseph was seduced by Potiphar's wife. And we'll read the entire account, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 39, Genesis chapter 39, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned... The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. By the way, um, that little statement at the end of verse 6 seems odd, doesn't it? Uh, why would food be singled out? And we think that it's because the, the Egyptians had their own sort of ceremonial law where they were not wanting somebody who was dirty, all right, namely a Hebrew, to be involved with what they put into their mouth. You know how the Hebrews had their own ceremonial law and would not associate with the Samaritans and had all the ritual. Uh, and that's where kosher comes from if you buy pickles. Uh, anyhow, here we think that the Egyptians had a similar situation where Joseph was able to supervise everything in, in his household, Potiphar's household, except food because of religious restrictions. So that seems to be the understanding for the end of verse 6. Now Joseph, we get into the plot, was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As he spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. 
Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But... The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. I want to ask you this morning, what is freedom? If anybody should know what freedom is, an American should know, right? What is freedom? Some of you were raised uh, having good uh, civics classes, good political science, government classes, and certainly you studied the great tradition of freedom that the United States has. And so you should be able to answer the question, what is freedom? We've studied freedom. We have reared our United States children to love freedom. We have claimed justification for almost anything we do around the world in the name of freedom. We claim that the United States' gift to the world today is to bring democracy, and the reason is democracy, at least hypothetically, democracy brings freedom. We have fought for freedom. We've set the government of our country up in such a way that if you read the Constitution of the Bill of Rights, the one thing that comes screaming through the thing in the Declaration of Independence is that we are to be guaranteed, and the rule of law is to lead to a guarantee of our freedom. Many, many have died to purchase it and to protect it. Something I didn't know until Herb died was that Herb had been in the Navy and had fought for freedom. And if we look at the language of ideology, the language of uh, political power in our nation today, uh, we hear freedom used as a justification for all kinds of things. We hear talk of sexual freedom of political freedom. We hear a lot of discussion of freedom of speech. We hear uh, stockbrokers and financial service providers speak of that uh, one goal that everybody seems to be heading towards in retirement, which is what? Financial freedom. We can worship here publicly in this church because of religious freedom. And even Jack Anderson and and Woodward and Bernstein and all the rest of them are able now to write better articles because of something called what? The Freedom of Information Act. Now, a lot of us have probably never thought deeply and pondered about freedom because as an American, we simply make an assumption that freedom and apple pie on the 4th of July all go together and You just know what it is. You talk a lot about it. And 
the talk indicates that it's so common, so understood, that there's not a lot of need for reflection. But I want to propose something this morning, and that is that the freedom that we all think that we have in this country uh, is, is actually not freedom at all. And all the light talk about freedom in our nation depends upon us all remaining blind to the one kind of freedom that's the only true freedom, and that is the freedom that Jesus Christ gives to us. And it really does serve to, I have a little habit, I haven't done it recently with my kids, but if I want to take the last cookie without them knowing that I'm a selfish pig, which they all know anyhow, I'll I'll go at the table, I'll go, look at the birdie! And everybody's eyes will be carried by my hand up into the corner and I snatch the cookie. (laughs) My father used to uh, like to tell the joke of the uh, country circuit rider preacher who, after service one day, uh, in the evening, he, he went over to the family's house of one of the main families in the church, and they had 10 children, and there were 13, or 14, uh, 14 pieces of chicken on the plate in the center of the table. And uh, so everybody had one piece of chicken, and there was one left over, if I've done my math right. And uh, in the middle of the meal, all of a sudden, there was a big thunderstorm, and the lights went out. And when the lights came back on, the preacher's hand was over top of the chicken and there were 12 forks stuck into the top of it. <laughs> well, in our home, if I want to be a selfish pig, I will use that, look at, look at the birdie, and it takes your minds off of whatever it was that you were looking at commonly and redirects them someplace else. And I think that the discussion and the worship of freedom in our nation uh, really serves quite efficiently in taking our mind off of the fact that our nation is probably as much as any other time in history filled with bondage. And so I want to start this morning by asking again, what is freedom? Is freedom the absence of vulnerability to terrorist bombs? Since 9-11, have we been slaves to terrorists, whereas before that we were free? Now, obviously, since we read the story of Joseph, I think Joseph has something to do with freedom. So where am I headed? Well, as he served in Potiphar's house, Joseph, we know, was seduced by Potiphar's wife. And this went on for quite a while. She was constantly trying to get him to go to bed with her. And it was uh, uh, an untenable position for him because he had to be in the home. It was the nature of his job to be intimate with the lady of the home. Uh, you, You don't look at him being in the home alone with her and fault him because that's what Potiphar told him to do. Uh... And she went after him, and then finally, uh, she really pressured him one day, so much so that he fled, leaving his cloak in her hands. And so here she had picked the time and the place to make her most uh, vigorous assault against him. And at that moment, uh, he fled, and we ask ourselves, who was free, Joseph or Potiphar's wife? Well, it gets even it gets even clearer. If you look at the situation with uh, the kind of eyes that political theorists would look at, you would say that Joseph was in bondage and Potiphar's wife was free. 
Certainly after the Civil War, we all understand that the one thing a slave isn't is free. And the one thing the master is, is free. After all, the master has absolute uh, choice, and choice is what determines freedom, right? The master can choose when to get up and when to go to bed. The master can choose what kind of car to drive. The master can even choose which of the slave's women to be intimate with. And this is what we see in all the battle over uh, Thomas Jefferson. After all, Thomas Jefferson could not have been intimate with the women of the slaves uh, without it being an act of oppression. They were not free to say no, they were slaves. And so this is a very serious part of American culture today, trying to understand the nature of freedom and bondage. Every single American, if you ask them without suggesting that they be careful, would tell you that Joseph was a slave and in bondage and that Potiphar's wife had complete freedom. After all, Potiphar's wife had not been purchased. She was the lady of the house. She had the freedom to go and come and to do as she wished. She was a woman to be envied above almost all. There was almost nothing she didn't have. Think of it. She was married to a husband who... The most powerful man in the world at the time depended upon her husband for protection. He was the head of Pharaoh's guard. So that means that if ruling dignitaries from other states came to Washington, D.C. for state dinners, he was in the White House. He was able to hang out with all of the actors and actresses and all of the uh, emperors of the business world. Um, he had great military prowess and he had command over many, many men who also had such military prowess. Uh, if armies conquered and loot was taken, Potiphar benefited and thereby his wife. If Pharaoh threw a party, Potiphar was invited. Food, clothing, and servants in abundance. But look deeper at the wife of Potiphar and you see something else. You see that this woman was what? Well, you see that she was evil. To start with, she was not satisfied with her husband. She wanted someone else and not just anyone. She wanted one of his servants. She wanted the man that he was most vulnerable to. He struck her fancy and she went after him. And then, even more indicative of the kind of woman this, this wife of Potiphar was, look at her behavior after Joseph ran from her that day. The first thing to notice is the Jekyll Hyde change in her affections. The great poet Milton has observed that, quote, lust dwells hard by hate. And Potiphar's wife as soon as Joseph ran and left his cloak in her hands, she turned from a sweet-talking girl to a very, very ugly woman. And she became incredibly vindictive when he rejected her. First, she attacked those who were closest to Joseph, his fellow servants. And we see that uh, today, it's very common in prisons for uh, wardens and guards to try to control the prison by setting prisoner against prisoner. 
we are very vulnerable as human beings to peer pressure. And we can imagine that like Joseph's brothers, his fellow servants in the house of Potiphar did not need any second excuse to speak up against him. They probably resented how he had come up into a position of favor. And they were probably looking for an opportunity to get at him. And she provided it. She spoke against him to his peers. She called in the other servants with a lying and a hypocritical scream. And she said to them, look here, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make fun of us. Notice the the pronoun. I love noticing pronouns. (laughs) And uh, she didn't say you. She didn't say me. She said us. In other words, hey, uh, we're in this together. You know, Joseph was really attacking you. We wonder what she meant when she tried to get the other servants to feel insulted by Joseph. What had Joseph done to deserve the anger of his fellow servants? Well, the answer is nothing. The point wasn't what Joseph had done, but rather what Potiphar's wife wanted to accomplish. She assassinated his character and then she divided him off from his peers. She wanted Joseph to be resented and ostracized by the other servants. And then she didn't stop. Humiliated and embarrassed by the righteous acts of a godly man, she spent the day waiting for her husband to come home. Now, think about this. We don't know how long it was, but likely it was hours. And there that woman is. Think about this. She's lying there. What does she have next to her? His cloak. Now, it's one thing, and this is why the this is why in a court of law, if 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 you lose it and you do something wrong, you're not as badly off as if you plan for months and years beforehand to do the evil thing and, and you pull it off. And with Potiphar's wife, she is carefully planning. And although the initial inclination might well have been uh, an impulsive thing, it's not impulsive anymore. She's waiting. She has that cloak next to her. She knows what she's going to do. She's planned it out. And as the anger wears off, the bitterness and resentment and jealousy and hatred, they all get more intense. And we know what she's going to do, don't we? She, with righteous indignation, coming out of every pore, lifts the cloak up, tells her lie, and then watches for her husband's response. Now, how did he respond? Well, there's a little thing that, that I want to caution us about. From Scripture, we cannot be sure of whether or not Potiphar believed his wife. Now, why do I say that? Well, if you look at it, verse 18, she finishes her story saying, And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. And then verse 19 says this. It says, Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. He was there in jail. You have a hard time believing, first of all, that Potiphar could have been married to this kind of woman without knowing it. Now, I do a lot of counseling. And I can tell you that uh, in marriage counseling, there's this little truth that Mary Lee and I have observed over the years, which is, even when a spouse protests that they knew nothing about what their spouse was doing, there's usually a good bit of knowledge that they don't want to admit. You know, there's an old French saying that nobody's as deaf as the person that doesn't want to hear. 
And it's very difficult for you to be one with another human being and for that human being to be oblivious to your character. I mean, that's one of the problems with marriage, isn't it? Your husband or wife is anything but oblivious to your character. (laughs) Your husband or wife usually has your number. And, uh, you know, I can think of in fights that Marilyn and I have, I know you don't have them, but we do, Um, and uh, Eric and Shauna, you will. (laughs) They're going to get married soon. And uh, so I'm just trying to do some counseling for the pulpit. (laughs) In marriage, a lot of times when Mary Lee and I have arguments or fights, the thing that most irritates me, and that's a euphemism, is when Mary Lee, in the middle of the argument, tells me why I'm doing what I'm doing. (laughs) Now, she is sometimes wrong. I have to maintain my ability to fight in future fights. But often she has an element of truth. And uh, that's why, because she has my character nailed. And it's hard to believe that Potiphar had risen to the position he'd risen to while being entirely naive. He probably knew what kind of woman he was married to. Furthermore, if Potiphar knew what kind of woman he was married to, uh, it's likely he also... Uh, was not going to respond as uh, the head of Pharaoh's guard to a man that tried to rape his wife, right? By what? Simply putting him in prison. I mean, what would be the penalty all across the ancient world, especially when a man has unlimited power like Potiphar, to a man trying to rape your wife? I mean, those of us in civilized America in this late date would have an inclination what to do, and that inclination would be what? To sit down and have a a man-to-man talk? I don't think so. (laughs) I had to get that fly. I think our inclination would be to kill the man. Right? And Potiphar had nothing that was limiting his actions. So the question is, did Potiphar put Joseph in prison because he was so angry at Joseph? It doesn't say he was angry, or because he was angry at his wife and he had no other choice. And I think it's about equal. It's an equal guess, either one. It might have been that he was angry at Joseph and something limited his actions, but it might well have been that he was furious with his wife. But how, when you're in such a prominent position, your wife lies and you know her character, how do you handle it? I think he had no other choice. I think he had to put Joseph in prison. But I think it's likely that his anger was actually against the situation he found himself in and the woman he found himself married to. We don't know. He was angry. That's all we know. And so here Joseph is in prison, and notice there's no ground or basis for a true charge to be brought against him, and so an untrue charge, but one that has a kernel of truth that lends the accusations an air of legitimacy is brought against him, namely uh, this cloak, this cloak that he left in her arms. And uh, we should learn from this story that it is often true that troublemakers and chronic complainers and gossips and people that bear grudges against others are usually capable of finding something to use as a springboard for their accusations. The liars always have an element of truth to their lies. 
Okay? And there was an element of truth. Namely, that cloak was there in her hands and Joseph had left it. If you're wise, you'll realize the element of truth doesn't make the whole story true. After all, remember about Jesus. Jesus had indeed said that he would rebuild the temple of God in three days after it was destroyed, but meaning that he would rise from the dead three days after he was crucified. Joseph had indeed left his cloak in the hands of Potiphar's wife, being determined, though, to escape her evil clutches. And so we should look carefully at the evidence that slanderers and gossips use to construct their evil stories. Now, the final act that's evil, that's committed by Potiphar's wife, was not just that she told this lie, but that she stuck with her story and allowed Joseph to waste away in prison. All those years that he was in prison, just a word from her could have freed Joseph, but she chose to make him suffer. And so, to describe her action, we can use words like bitter, dishonest, envious, lustful, hypocritical, and hateful. Now, let me come back to my question. Who is free? Who is free? Is she free? Bitter, envious, lustful, hateful, a liar? unfaithful, adulterer. And if this is freedom, who wants it? Now, what about Joseph? Remember, he's, he's in bondage and he's a slave. Okay? What about Joseph? Well, Joseph went from the favorite son of a wealthy man to the slave of an Egyptian ruler. And then he went from a slave of an Egyptian ruler to a prisoner in a dungeon. And if you think about it, the best thing he could have done for advancement would probably have been to go ahead and sleep with his employer's wife. And yet Joseph chose not to go in that direction and then was falsely accused, like Jesus, of whom he was a type. And then he chose, like Jesus, not to open his mouth. Both here in chapter 39 and earlier in chapter 37, we have no record of Joseph defending himself against the false accusations. And so the prophet Isaiah prophesies about our Lord when he was here on earth, saying he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Verse 7, Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And this is Joseph. As he lived in prison, he carried the reputation that went along with his crime. He did not belong in prison. He was innocent, but he was in prison as an adulterer. And all of us know what it's like to visit a prison. We know what the stories are that were told in prison. And the stories are that nobody there is guilty. Absolutely nobody. What I find fascinating is that if you commit certain crimes and you go to prison, the other criminals will kill you if they can. Namely, any attack upon children. And so it's very interesting that nobody's guilty except the people who have attacked children. And then all of them are guilty and the other prisoners will kill them. The other prisoners certainly take it for granted that they're guilty, don't they? 
So here he is in prison, innocent, everybody assuming he's guilty. He looked like a common criminal, just as Jesus Christ did when he hung on the cross between two thieves. Rights of both these men were violated all over the place. there's an attorney who has done a study of the, uh, the law pertaining to trials and to judgments in the Roman world and uh, in the Jewish world at the time of Christ. And aspect after aspect of Christ's trial and condemnation were direct violations of the law. If there had ever been an appeal to the Supreme Court, the case would have been thrown out in a heartbeat and Christ would have been free. Well, there's no appeal for Jesus or for Joseph. So, again, I come back to the question, who was free? Well, you know, obviously where I'm going, but I want you to think about it a little bit. There's no question that the slave is free and that the free woman is the slave. And I want you to think about this, and the reason is because freedom does matter. America has not fought for freedom all these centuries and and used her wealth to try to bring freedom to other nations because freedom doesn't matter. Freedom does matter. But America has bought into a lie. And many of us have also bought into the lie, and that is we judge people on the merits of their physical lives and of what we can see with our eyes, and we forget the existence of the immortal soul. And... One thing that has to be said to us because of our conceit as a nation is that there is a slavery which is freedom and a freedom which is slavery. That the Civil War does not address. And if you look at Scripture with with biblical and spiritual eyes, what you will see is that all through Scripture, what? There are examples of slaves who are free and freemen who are slaves. And if you're just willing to trot out trite, ideological, political, historical arguments and to be superficial, then you will never understand the nature of bondage nor the nature of freedom. You'll just go around thinking, God bless America. And the whole world is freer because of our wonderful witness. But think about this. We export democracy. We export pornography. Now, which one of those actions brings freedom to people? This morning in our Sunday school class, Tim Wagner was teaching us again from the children's catechism and he was going into the nature of original sin and the nature of the federal headship of Adam and of Jesus Christ and of the fact that Adam brings bondage and death, Jesus Christ brings liberty and life. And in the course of it, he began to talk about how both liberals and conservatives in our country, both of them, 
do not understand the nature of the depravity of man and of original sin. The only thing that differs between liberals and conservatives is the solution that they have. The solution of liberals is government and education. The solution of conservatives is laissez-faire capitalism and individual freedom and the libertarian party. There's not an ounce of difference between the two sides. Now, you can argue as a Christian that one side will ultimately lead to a better climate for the proclamation of the gospel. But let's look at Russia. Russia, under communism, was a classic example of a nation which was completely free under liberal terms. You know? The people as a whole owned the means of production. The people as a whole were free to share all the wealth. All right? There were enlightened people in office. Enlightened people who would not allow individual greedy men to oppress the masses. Now, you, you understand I'm saying this with a great deal of tongue-in-cheek. All right? But, but, but look at it. There was a reason why the New York Times for many years defended the Soviet Union. There's a reason why Stalin was defended and honored in the New York Times, and it has never repented of that. There's a reason why many of the great liberal philosophers defended communism. So, okay, communism goes bust, and it goes bust because it can't handle things financially. And the conservatives are proven right, right? And so communism is, is taken out of power across the Soviet Union, and then what happens? Everybody becomes free, right? What are they free for? They're free, as Solzhenitsyn prophesied, and indeed it happened, they're free for the entire mass of Western decadence to come into the Soviet Union on the wings of what? Capitalism. On the wings of the merchants of lust and death. And so now in the Soviet Union, you go over there and what? People are free individually, one by one, instead of 50 million at a time under Stalin's command in the Gulag. They're now free what? To kill themselves with vodka. They're free, they say, that the next growth place in, in uh, HIV, AIDS, deaths, and hepatitis uh, C is going to be the Soviet Union. All right? And the Soviet Union is free to have, their women have on average, I don't even know how many, but it is not infrequent for women to have had nine abortions in the Soviet Union. Pornography, the mafia, no rule of law. And so here, this is what you have. This is why I love the line from who's next, the who. Won't get fooled again. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. And where is freedom? Now, does that mean that I don't think it's a good thing that the Soviet Union broke down? No, I think it's a good thing. And there are good things going on. Namely, there's a mass of Christians going over there to preach the gospel. But America has consistently exported sin all over the world. Do you understand this? Individualism isn't freedom. What is freedom? Freedom is the result of not fearing any man, but instead fearing what? God. You don't begin to be free until you realize that it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. 
And until you realize that God is the only person worth fearing, you will always be in bondage. There is nobody who is more in bondage than the person who can never bring himself to do anything until he has carefully calculated the response of every single person that's listening to him or watching him. And that is a pathetic position to be in. That is absolute slavery and bondage. But... The person that's died to their reputation, think of Jesus. If there's ever a man who had died to his reputation, it is our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why it's so pathetic when people say that Jesus had 12 male disciples because the social culture at the time couldn't have handled having a female disciple. It's just so laughable. When was Jesus ever running around trying to figure out what the social culture of his time was willing to tolerate? Jesus was consistently, and he didn't start with Rome. Rome was an afterthought. He started in his own home, in his own community, and that's where he was a prophet. He called his own pastors whitewashed sepulchers. Think about this. And was Jesus free? Yeah, you know how we know he was free? Because all through the Gospel of John, he says over and over again, I must do the will of my Father. And there's nothing that's more free than being free to do the will of God. I mean, okay, let's say that you decide that you're not going to do God's will, right? What are your choices? Okay, here they are. You know what they are, right? You can go around and, and join a fraternity. And boy, that's free. You can get drunk and you can have sex and then you can get diseases. You can become an alcoholic. In fact, you could probably go far in many corporations as an alcoholic. You can be free to love money. That's the great idol of America. You can go your whole life being respectable, never having anybody ask you to confess your sins in public in a church if you're just greedy you know, if, if you're an alcoholic, you might have to confess it publicly, but only if you get caught driving under the influence. All right? But if you're greedy, nobody will ever ask you to get up in front of a church and say, I confess that I am an idolater. You can live for sex, and as long as you keep it within the marriage bonds and never make an ass of yourself... You can be a good idolater. You can live for your stomach, for your belly. Your God can be your belly. And I go through and I say, okay, gluttony, lust, greed. You can be a mother who cares about nothing but her children and have her children as her idol. You, you can be a mother who resents the victories and successes of every other mother's children. You can always be building your children up and tearing everybody else's children down. Okay, You can refuse to allow your husband any hand in discipline because you're afraid that he'll cause your children to be alienated from you. You can be, in other words, again, an idolater. And are you free? Look with me, if you would, please, 
at John chapter 19, beginning with verse 9. A very, very interesting exchange. John chapter 19, beginning with verse 9. As Americans, we're very confident that we know what freedom is. Here Jesus is in front of the Roman ruler, Pilate. All the apparatus of the ancient empire of Rome. His life hangs in the balance. And then in verse 9... He turns to Jesus and he says, where are you from? Indeed, where is he from? But Jesus what? Gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered what? You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, now notice, who has the noose tightening around his neck? I mean, come on. Who's free? Pilate? As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. Pilate made efforts to release him, but... Pilate made efforts, but... The Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar! Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And therefore, when Pilate heard these things, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. And now it's the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king! And so they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so, what? Verse 16 says, He then, what? Handed him over to them to be crucified. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 6. says there, beginning with verse 3, Romans 6, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be what? Slaves to sin. For he who has died is what? Freed from sin. You know something? The entire ideology of America depends upon you denying the existence of your immortal soul and the existence of the only true God. And as long as you give in to that lie, you will have trivial thoughts about the nature of bondage and freedom. 
You will think that a nation that gets democracy is free. You will think that capitalism brings freedom. You will not look at people who are greedy as slaves of Satan. You will not look to Christ and plead with him for freedom because you will have it as the patrimony of your nation. But the minute you recognize that this body encases an immortal soul that will never die, and you realize that true freedom is the product of death as Christ himself died, and that those who are free are those who take up their cross and die, who in death are buried and then rise again, you will realize that freedom is a gift that only God can give. And that often it is the very opposite of what it appears to superficial eyes that see only on the surface. And this is why America, despite claiming that she freed the slaves in the Civil War, continues to sing the songs of the slaves. Because those songs carry a reality that was never touched by the Emancipation Proclamation. Namely, that in bondage, vulnerable to the masters, wherever they held slaves in this nation, those who believed in the Son of God were never in bondage. Never. One more text, John chapter 8. Turn with me, please. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says this, John 8, beginning with verse 31. And boy, if there's one nation that gives competition to the U.S. claiming to have the rights of freedom, it was the Jews. Oh, they were free. Because the creation of their nation came out of God obliterating the bondage of their slavery to Egypt. All right? They were free. And here's what Jesus says, John 8:31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And what did they say? They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So, what? If the son, what? If the son makes you, what? Free. You will be free indeed. Now, one last comment. Why is besetting sin so awful for the Christian? Why is it so awful for the Christian to give himself to stealing and to adultery? and to alcoholism. You know why? Because having been freed by the Spirit of God through the power of Jesus Christ, as in baptism we die and are brought into life, how perverse is it for us to return again to the bondage of sin? Do you understand that? The only person that can do that is a person who despises the living God, who despises the work of Christ. This is why anybody who says that Jesus can be our Savior without being our Lord has not the first bit of understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. We are not saved to return again to sin and be in bondage to it. We are saved 
to be a visible manifestation, whether we're in prison or whether we sit in the highest court of, of the United States. It don't matter. We are there to be a visible manifestation that when the Son makes us free, we are free indeed. Let's pray.